Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 to start us off. Uh, our brother was reading there in Exodus chapter 32 about God showing his back parts. And it's Ken, Ken Kozak and I were talking about the subject of will we ever see the face of God the Father? What do you think of that, Brett? Will we ever see the face of God the Father, Claire? Well, I'm not sure of that, um, and I told him I'm not sure. But we do see some visibility of God in Exodus 32 where he was reading. How then would we explain that? God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That certainly would refer to the Holy Spirit and to God the Father. Jesus, we know, took on a body, a, bomb, a body that he will unite, who he's united with forever. He will always be embodied. What an amazing thing. And remember when Jesus was on earth, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen him that sent me. So that vision of seeing the Father would be a spiritual vision of the Father. So what do we make out of Exodus 32? I'm just sort of throwing this in right now in connection with your question, Ken. And maybe we can make this a little more of a dialogue this morning since we're so small rather than just a monologue. So listen carefully, because I might pick on you. Um, so uh, getting back to that, we can see that, and this is something I've learned recently uh, from a brother named Tony Costa in another book I read, that, that the, the Yahweh that's visible in the Old Testament, uh, like in the burning bush possibly, for instance, and other examples, wrestling, uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord and Samson and his wife, uh, not the, his mother and father, rather, who saw the angel of the Lord, their visibility. The angel described himself in both instances as the divine person. That would be a pre-incarnate theophany of Jesus, who's a visible Yahweh. There's two Yahwehs, as it were, a visible and an invisible. The invisible being the Father, the visible being the Lord Jesus. So Jesus it says in John that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So anyway, I don't have a firm dogma on this. Maybe you may, but uh, in my past studies on it, and this question has been raised before, whether we will ever see the face of God the Father. And even if we don't, the presence of God the Father will be so overwhelming that it will be as if we did see him face to face. And the Bible uses that kind of a language in regards to our final, you could say, union with God in the most climactic way possible that it describes it, that we will see the face of God. Now, whether that's a literal face of God or whether it's an actual confronting the face of God, an actual appearance and an actual uh, you could say a spiritual experience with God described of as being with him in that fashion face to face. Anyway, that's just something I thought I would throw in a little bit. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's look at these verses here. You should be familiar with them. That from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, this is Paul writing to Timothy, and some of you here, how many grew up uh, as a child knowing the Holy Scriptures from Okay, see, 
we have some families here, children that are, we're children that are now older, and we have children that will look at this verse and say that, yes, from a child I knew the Holy Scriptures because they were taught that. Now, in Timothy's case, his mother was a believer. The father was a Gentile pagan, um, which shows that you can raise a child having an unbelieving spouse in a way that he eventually, and he is the only one, by the way, called in the New Testament a man of God. No one else in the New Testament is called a man of God but Timothy. And that from a child he knew the Holy Scriptures. And it's most difficult, isn't it, sometimes in thinking of your conversion experience if you've been brought up. Like Seth, I know, has probably waffled a little bit on was he saved then or there or here or Larissa too brought up in a Christian home, we could say, with at least Bible background and knowledge and conversion may have been a bit muddled by some errant teachings, but Jesus can even, and the Holy Spirit does override cases sometimes where people, that's why I think even in the Catholic Church, as bad as their, fault, as their salvation doctrine is, through the reading of the word, through other things spoken possibly, maybe charismatic services, maybe listening to uh, a TV preacher or a Billy Graham message or something, the Lord can save anybody in any place, and they may ignorantly remain in a, in a wrong system. Hopefully they will graduate to come out of that at some point, but we don't know. But here, Timothy, from a child, he knew the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures don't save you. It's the Scriptures that point you to Christ that saves you. Now, the next verse is what I want to uh, kind of concentrate a little bit on this morning. And by the way, if you're looking at your bulletin and you've seen and heard from me last week that we're going to continue, have a little mini-series on the Holy Spirit, I knew that we were going to have a small crowd today, and I wasn't sure if we'd even live stream, but for those that are not able to make it, there's a special day today for live streaming, so I don't know how many might possibly be watching this, but I'm letting you know anyway that... Um, uh, I just postponed that, and I'm, I'm speaking on something different this morning, and I would rather that there be more people to be able to uh, follow along in that little mini Holy Spirit series. So verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture meaning from Genesis to Revelation, from the first chapter to the last chapter. This is what is called the canon. These are the Holy Scriptures that was able to make one wise. Now, of course, when Paul's writing this to Timothy, there were no New Testament completion of Scripture at this point in time. Uh, there were obviously inspired epistles, and at this time, uh, maybe Mark could have been written if our dating of the Gospels would be accurate. Most scholars would date Mark to be the earliest Gospel somewhere in the 60s, which is when Paul was writing to Timothy. So there may have been, and of course the epistles of Paul, other epistles may have been in circulation, but they weren't yet collated. They weren't put into a corpus of literature. That came in time. So when Paul's saying to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that would be inclusive of New Testament scriptures, but they weren't yet available to the church at this early stage of history. But what are those scriptures that he's referring to? Whatever they are, let's say this first, they're profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness. And it goes on to say that the man of God might be completely furnished with every good work so that the scriptures are competent to be able to inform us whatever we need for godliness. Now, the scriptures that Paul could only have been referring to to Timothy would have been the Old Testament scriptures. So my subject this morning, can we get the first, oh, let me, can you put the first page up there? Um, somebody, I think I have the clicker somewhere. Okay, so reading the Old Testament for prophets, 2 Timothy 3.16. This guy's going like this because I don't know how, we, how much we realize the profitability of the Old Testament. But when Paul writes to Timothy, there was obviously an assumption that from the Old Testament scriptures, one could gain reproof, instruction, correction, so that the man of God would be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So there was nothing deficient in the Old Testament that couldn't equip the New Testament believer, Timothy namely, to be able to give instructions, corrections, etc. Now that's kind of a challenge. Just think if you were Timothy, or let's put it this way, let's say you had only the Old Testament. We admit that would be a big drawback. How could we teach Christian doctrine with just the Old Testament? How then could they have known what we read now in the New Testament? This is why one of the good reasons, I think, why it was vital that there were prophets, that there were ones who had gifts to be able to speak in foreign languages the wonderful works of God, that the apostles and the early teachers of the New Testament that are called the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that they would have been able to speak, as it were, with inspiration. And I'll put that in parentheses a little bit because I wouldn't want to compare the written word with the spoken word, but the words of the apostles and first century prophets, these who were authenticated, would have been able to communicate doctrines regarding the church. Like you can't find in the Old Testament certain things about how the church should operate. Where would you find in the Old Testament how uh, the, the local church is to be governed by elders, plural, and deacons, plural? You know, you would have to strain, and there's, you, there's no one-to-one -one correspondence in the Old Testament to the New in regards to that. That's why the first century was filled with the apostles and prophets who were able to establish the church. And then once the scriptures were completed, now you could say the church is put on the track and they're able with the scriptures to guide them to be able to carry on. But my subject this morning is the challenging one of how do we read the Old Testament for prophets? Now each of us, I think, approaches the Old Testament with some kind of a mentality about it that we... Uh, assume uh, we may read it like kind of a museum piece like this is ancient history and it's interesting and the stories are amazing but it's just sort of like passe and doesn't have any really direct relevance for us in the New Testament era that would be a fallacy and I'm going to try to show you a couple of things about this Jesus himself says in John 5 39 search the scriptures 
or he says, in searching the scriptures, so that New Testament, uh, I, I should say, Jesus' contemporaries would have been and should have been um, voracious readers of the Bible, of the word of God. Now, they didn't all have, like you and I, we walk in here with a Bible or we open it up in our homes, at our desks, in our lounge chairs, whatever we're sitting in, we can just open up the written word of God, bound together, 66 books, foreign to the first several centuries, something that we probably are not aware of and we don't appreciate, but what we are holding in our hands is amazing that we have the library of God in our hands. It wasn't as accessible to anyone in those centuries like it is to us. So how we need to be thankful to the Lord that we have access to it, not only that, that we can even turn to chapter and verse. In the, in the uh, early first millennium and more, there wasn't like, hey, let's turn to Psalm 103, verse 12, or to uh, uh, Genesis 49, 10. There was no chapter nor verse references in the writings of those books of the past. It wasn't until the 16th century that they actually started in Bible translating, which is what we have, Bible translation, where they started numbering passages and chapters. So when they were reading before that time, they were reading whole chunks of Scripture without any paragraph indentations. And in some cases, there was no capitals and lowercase letters. Uh, there were no breaks like we have, grammatical points like like. Uh, apostrophes or, uh, or periods or something like that. So there's been a lot of improvement for our benefit uh, in the way in which we can now read the Bible. So we, in a sense, we're kind of without excuse, and, we ha and now that we have a computer work that does so much for us and searching uh, things that, you know, our ancestors, they could not have done that the way we do, and so rapidly... It's amazing when you read a book like by Arthur Pink and he has hundreds and hundreds of passages in his writings or, or Matthew Henry and these were all off the top of their head or they may have had Strong's Concordance uh, which didn't come out I think until probably the 1800s. There wasn't much as far as concordances I don't believe prior to that. So a lot of that was by memory that they turned to these portions. So anyway, let's move on here. Um, Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Again, the book that was finally put together in Luke was addressed to people with Jesus being quoted as saying, remember Lot's wife. He's obviously referencing the Old Testament and there's some teaching that can be gained by thinking about Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Oops, I think I went higher. Yeah, there she is right there. Well, no, not really, but in a, in <laughs> when I went to the Dead Sea, if any of you have been there, there's tons of salt on the water, on the shoreline. There are even mounds of salt. And I, I kept wondering, oh, which one is Lot's wife under? You know, I mean, these are truths. And when you see stuff like that, or Noah's Ark, if they found it, and there's some evidence possibly that it has been found, that should shake your world up. You know, a lot of the modern-day scientists, Noah's Ark is a fallacy. Well, when archaeology digs up things and discovers things, 
now they have egg on their face because they can't explain what the Bible tells us is maybe somewhat miraculous. Nevertheless, it's factual, and we believe that. All right, so 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says about those that came through the wilderness out of Egypt, they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You'd have to know something about the book of Exodus and how that passage connects itself to it. So I just want you to see the, the correlation between what Paul's writing to the Corinthians about their association with the new Moses, the Christ, how that in our baptism, we're baptized unto Christ in the cloud, you could say the cloud of witnesses, the cloud of truth of the word, but we are, what, what is said here is there's an identification, there's a consecration. What the Israelites saw when the Red Sea opened and when Moses' hand went up with the staff and the Red Sea opened up like that, they had no choice but to say, wow, what a leader, I'm following him, God is with him. Now we know they failed along the way, they forgot about things like this, like we do sometimes as well, we forget about amazing things that God has done for us in our past, and we judge him sometimes by the things that are going on in our current life. And we fail to remember these glorious occasions when God demonstrated his power to us. Now, how about this verse? Moses sprinkled the scroll or the book in all the people. That's from Exodus 24. Does anybody know where that would come from? It's in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 9. It makes reference to this. Now, what's my point? I'm trying to say that the New Testament is telling us the value of the Old Testament. Moses took the, took the uh, he sprinkled with the, with, on the people and on the scroll that had been written with the commands that God had given to him, blood and water were sprinkled on the people and they came into the covenant. Now, what did Jesus shed on the cross when the soldier pierced his side? Mike, do you remember what came out? Blood and water? And we're talked about as the sprinkling with the sprinkled people of God with the water and the blood. So you see, there's, there's an association there. So Timothy had a, the Old Testament books as his instructive books to be able to teach and to instruct so that the man of God, the woman of God, the people of God could be fully equipped. Now, when we read the Old Testament, it's not easy, and it's, it's, we have to be careful in over-spiritualizing the Old Testament. And if you see something that has a New Testament parallel in your mind, and I see a lot of them, and you probably do too from time to time, and say, ooh, that matches with that. Or, for instance, like when Abraham was going to slay his son uh, and, and there was a ram caught with its horns in the thickets and it, it takes the place. So you see a, a correlation there with Jesus uh, becoming our substitute. We're the ones that we should have been punished. We should have been bruised and, and, and put to death and, and, and sent to hell. But Jesus, our substitute, caught with his horns. So you might see a spiritual parallel there. But if you don't have a New Testament... Uh, corroboration of it, you might want to be careful. This is one of the examples where it tells us that Hagar, 
who was who? Abraham's concubine, right? She was an Egyptian. She was a slave. But she mothered some of Abraham's children, right? But she was not the free woman. She was the bondwoman. And Paul is making a parallel under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Hagar stands for Mount Sinai. So that's an example of an inspired New Testament commentary about the Old Testament that we can say that Hagar is symbolical of Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, like what she was. Anyway, there's a lot more meat to that than what I just said to you, but I have to move along. Now, turn with me to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. And uh, before we start reading this, um, it's very obvious that there are big differences between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, we see numerous things. And I know you think of them, circumcision, we don't have to physically circumcise. There are dietary regulations. There are rules for Sabbath keeping, observance of holy days and feast days and we can figure that out, that those things have been climaxed and fulfilled in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the person of Jesus. For instance, he says, come unto me, all you that labor, and I will give you a Sabbath. I will be your Sabbath. You will have rest with me. So you could say that the literal Old Testament Sabbath was only temporary, and Jesus, when he comes, he's really the antitype of the Sabbath by being the one who fulfills how we rest. So that a particular day of the week is not one as it was in the past that had to be sanctified in such a way that you couldn't work, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't even walk so many uh, miles or whatever. Uh, and Jesus, of course, had a confrontation with his contemporaries over Sabbath keeping because they totally distorted it and eventually it climaxed with Christ being the real rest for the people of God. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, I want to talk briefly to you about uh, lots, for instance. How, how were things decided in the Old Testament? A simple example was on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the, the high priest was supposed to take two goats. And on one of the goats, the lot would fall for him or for that goat to be this, and the other goat would be the scapegoat. One goat would be killed, and its blood would be brought into the holy place. The other one would be put into the wilderness. How, how is it determined? You have two goats. Which lot, the lot, the Lord is going to decide through lots. How about Gideon, for instance? He wasn't sure whether or not he should fulfill a mission that God had call, called him to do, and he says, Lord, I'm going to put this fleece out. And if the fleece turns all dew and the ground around it is dry, then I'll, then I'll know it's your will. And God did what Gideon asked him to do. And then Gideon reversed it, and God still did it to confirm what he was uh, initially commissioned to do. We don't see those kinds of things, do we, in the New Testament? Korah's Rebellion, I was reading that this morning, how the, they brought their senses out and the Lord came down and judged them because they were not acceptable to him. How about when 
Korah and the, and, and the rest of them were rebelling against the fact that Moses or the Levites were the, were the tribe uh, that, that were to lead the people in priestly worship. So Moses says, I want all of the heads of the 12 tribes to bring their rod. It was symbolic of the rod of that family or that tribe. And all the 12 rods were placed inside the tabernacle. For how long? For a day. And then the next day, the one that was budded was the one. How did that happen? God miraculously caused the, the, uh, the, um, the rod of the, or the staff of the tribe of Levi to bud. So there was no question. God had made it visibly clear what his mind was in regards to who would be the priestly family. How about when there was sin in the camp and they had to go through the camp to discover there is sin. This is why we're not able to destroy the city of Ai. This is in a book of uh, Joshua chapter 6 and 7. And they're casting lots and finally it comes up, what? Achan is the guilty one. How did they know that? By lot that was cast. Anyway, there, there are numerous examples of that, and I want to read with you another one. And this is Numbers chapter 5, and I think we can get some practical teaching out of this. And this is what I mean by how could Timothy use the Old Testament scriptures for prophets? Now, obviously, there aren't a lot of correlation, direct correlations like we had with Hagar and Mount Sinai in the New Testament. So it does take, in the book of Hebrews talks about when for the time you ought to be teachers. You have one that, that teach you, teach, you have to be taught even now. You're still unskilled and unlearned and you should be teachers by now. And every, every believer in a way should graduate in their knowledge of the word so that they're more competent to be able to teach others. Not as necessarily a gifted teacher, but as a knowledgeable and informed one that can take the word and can expound it, explain it to, to someone. So let's look at uh, Numbers chapter 5. And uh, can we go down to verse number 11? We should have started at verse 11. 5 and verse 11, if we can get that up on the screen. I'm reading the NIV here now. Okay, thank you. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another, where are we here? So that another man has sexual relations with her and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act. What does that make you think of in the New Testament? Who was caught in the act? Who? The adulterous woman. That's what they say when they bring her to Jesus. This woman was caught in the very act, and Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say? Well, there's no witnesses in this case. So what happens? Let's read on. If his feelings of jealousy... Other translations will read, if a spirit of jealousy comes over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure. Now, what do we get out of that? A spirit of jealousy. God is acknowledging 
that a person can have a, what we would call a gut feeling. You ever use that expression? Have a gut feeling that so-and-so, or this is wrong, or I should do that, or this person's not, you know, whatever it is, it's sort of like that inward spirit, desire, experience that you just assume it. It just overpowers you almost. Well, that's what's happened in this case. The husband feels sure by the spirit of jealousy or a feeling of jealousy that's so powerful that he's instructed to do something about it, even if he's wrong about it, which kind of shocks you because of where this is going to go. Let's, let's uh, continue. Then he, that's the husband, is to take his wife to the priest. <coughs> he must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. Now, this is obviously a specialized ceremony to detect the innocence or the guilt of this suspected adulterous woman. And this is the procedure that the man who has the spirit of jealousy has to take. Let's read on. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water. Where would that holy water come from? Harrison, where's the holy water going to come from? Yeah, the labor of brass, more than likely. Remember that, the piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle? You had the burnt offering altar first, the brazen altar, and then as the priest would go to the next compartment of the tabernacle, which was called the holy place, the only way they could get there, they had to pass by the laver. The laver was made out of the looking glasses of the women of Israel. They were like mirrors. So when they would wash, as they would look into the basin, they would actually see a reflection of themselves. What a beautiful picture. James, James chapter 1 brings that out about don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer, and he that goes away is like one who looks at himself at a mirror and goes away and forgets what kind of a person he was. Interesting, isn't it? The labor. So that's probably the place from which this water, holy water, was taken in a jar. And, and then, now this is interesting, and put in this, what? The dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. In other words, put dirt, and some translations would have the word dirt or dust from the tabernacle floor into this holy vessel. Again, keep in mind, Paul's telling Timothy that the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, is able to what? Give you the wisdom to know how to instruct, to rebuke, to exhort, correct, etc., so the man of God or the woman of God can be thoroughly furnished in every good work. I gotta stop and pause about the dust uh, or the, the dirt floor. Now, obviously, this is referring to the time period prior to the temple, right? Because the structure that was erected was mobile, so they would set it up in the wilderness. There was no carpet put beneath it. There was no no flooring that was put beneath it. The only thing beneath it was dirt. Dirt. Dirt was dirt. Ugh. You know, ask 
asked a woman what dirt's like. That's what dirt is, okay? So it was dirt. But what is the dirt? It's the dirt from the tabernacle floor. What, would the, what could this speak of? Again, you could say, well, you can use your imagination, but the tabernacle in some ways is a type of the church. The dust from the floor of the tabernacle, you could say that this is a sanctified place. And the church is, and Paul says to Timothy, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Take it for what you, what you would. But to me, it's significant, I think, that that dirt, not just any old dirt, not dirt from outside the camp, or not dirt that was in your neighbor's outside of the tent area, but dirt from the floor of the tabernacle had to be put inside of this, this jar, this container. Then what? <clears throat> Next. After the priest had has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair. Loosen her hair. We, we use the, the expression, let's let our hair hang down. In other words, what, what would that symbolize? Probably it's, it's a humbling thing for the woman to let her hair down, <coughs> um, at least in those days. Okay, ladies, don't get nervous. If you have your hair down instead of up like yours. Uh, let it down, loosen it up. In other words, this is going to be a day of exposure. And she has to be willing, obviously. She's brought there. She's going through the, the ceremony herself. Her hair's being loosened. In other words, this is a time of reckoning. Full exposure before God. This is all before God. This is no just like, there's no magic trick here going on. This is no some sort of a mysterious ceremony that's going to result in some, you know, amazing answer. This is a divine direction for the Israelites to take under these circumstances, and the result would come from God. <clears throat> so she places in her hands the remainder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings the curse. Because the husband is the one that believes he has been uh, violated by his wife, so he's the one that's going to administer the drink to her. Next, <clears throat> the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. That's one possibility. Drinking it's not going to poison her. She's not going to get sick about it. But what would happen if it was effective? But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, next, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. And this is what would be said. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. Now, there was nothing worse for a woman to have a miscarrying womb. The Bible talks about the desire of woman. 
the desire of woman is to have a child. Some women have been deprived of that. My heart goes out to them when that's the case. But I think it's it's inbuilt every woman and every woman to want to bear a child. And because Israel, of course, was an earthly people, they had possessions, they had land, they had promises that they would have long lives, that they would have fruitful fields, that they would have fruitful wombs. Now, you don't read of those kinds of prosperities in the New Testament. Our brother was reading in Psalm 103 about the Lord who heals all your diseases. Pentecostals have taken that and run with it so that in Christian science, of course, really takes it overboard so that there's no such thing as a Christian getting a disease because God has already healed you. You just got to name it to claim it. That's where they get things like that from passages there in Psalm 103 and elsewhere or fruitful fields, or fruitful wombs, and so on, or long life. <coughs> that verse about long life is repeated in the New Testament. Anybody know where? Parents should know this one. Where does it say that you will have long life if you honor your mother and your father? Ephesians 6 is correct. Um, now, that is that a New Testament promise for us? That if we honor our mother and father, little ones, if you do that, are you going to have a long life? Or what if you die young? Is that a judgment on you that you really didn't honor your mother and father? No. I think it's simply saying that that was a commandment that had attached to it a long life for the one who was honoring their mother and their father. But it's not a guarantee for people in the New Testament because there's a transition that has occurred. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Thank you. <clears throat> We're blessed with uh, all the blessings uh, of the heavenlies whereas the Jews' blessings were all temporal things. The name that they had, the amount of territory that they had, these sorts of things were valuable for the Israelites, not so in the New Testament. Paul talks about himself being poor, yet making many rich. He talks about himself as being a fool for Christ's sake. He says, we are as the offscouring of all things. We're a theater to the world. We're humiliated. We're despised. We have no certain dwelling place. We, we uh, spend a day and a night in, in water, in shipwreck. All these sort of, you could say, calamities that came on them. Well, this wouldn't be the norm for an Old Testament Israelite who God was blessing. But blessings in the New Testament are not construed in the same way because we have come to a different level, you could say, of revelation. We call it progressive revelation, moving from the old covenant into the new covenant. And there's a lot of different things we could talk about that have changed since then. Okay, let's finish this up now. <clears throat> the priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. Now, we have another example, don't we, in the Old Testament where they had to eat what was written, do you remember where that was? In Deuteronomy, maybe Ezekiel too, but in Deuteronomy, because they had broken the commandments, what, what Moses had done is he had smashed the tablets with the, with the um, Ten Commandments on them, ground them to powder, and made them, mingled it with water and made them drink it, drink of their iniquities. So this woman is expected uh, to uh, drink of it as well, 
it was going to go inside the water that was contained in that vessel. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter water and causes bitter suffering will enter her. Next verse. The priest is to take from her hands a grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. Keep going. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell, and her womb will miss casting. Now, again, this is peculiar. It sounds really odd to us. What it's basically saying is this. This woman will not be a bearer of children. Her, her abdomen swelling, I believe, is in connection with having a miscarrying womb. Again, this is a severe judgment. Now, why wasn't she put to death? What New Testament, you could say, teaching do we get from this? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. That's practical for us as a church. If, if there's a case that comes up within the church about someone being guilty of, say, I don't know, uh, whatever, do we have two or three witnesses? That's very important. In this case, because there's not two or three witnesses, she can't be, if there were two or three witnesses, put to death. Like what they brought when they brought the adulterous woman to Jesus. It was confirmed from the Old Testament, Exodus uh, 22, uh, Deuteronomy 22, 24. She's to be put to death, taken in adultery, witnesses. But here there are no witnesses. But God, and this is why I'm trying to bring out how in the Old Testament, God worked in ways, in a, in a, in a way that we kind of wish that he would work too. I mean, Israel had the benefit of what was called the, the Urim and the Thummim that was this mysterious piece of whatever that was contained within the breastplate. And so if Israel wanted to know a certain truth about a matter, they could go and plead to God through the Urim and the Thummim and a revelation as an oracle would come from that Urim and Thummim, which means lights and perfection, so that they would know the mind of God. What struck me the most about this whole thing is that the spirit of jealousy that comes on the person and the conclusion is not what the spirit of jealousy that he felt was accurate. God proved that she was innocent or God could have proved that she was guilty. But the fact that there's left the option that she could be innocent assumes then that the person who has a spirit of jealousy, it's a credible spirit of jealousy, a feeling of jealousy. And that person with that feeling of jealousy is instructed to go to the Lord in this way to get the conclusion of the innocence or guilt of that woman. Now for you and I, the Bible says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. But yet at the same time, we know that we have to act sometimes. Act on, we use the word maybe impulse, 
or having an inclination or propensity to do this or to do that. Our conscience may, uh, you could say, stimulate us in a certain way. And those things are not bad. They're real feelings. And it'd be nice if we could go through some kind of a ceremony to know, should I move, should I stay? Should I marry this one, should I not marry that one? Should I take this job, or should I not take this job? I think our feelings have to be monitored carefully because everybody lives on feelings to a certain extent. Do you ever feel sometimes that you're not saved? Aren't you glad that you've got something that you can trust beyond your feelings that can guarantee and secure you with what is the truth so that your feelings, your gut feeling, if you will, that makes you feel guilty or rot, not right with God, that can be overridden by what saith the scriptures. So even though we don't have the ceremony that we could utilize to bring something to a final conclusion, you know, in the early days, two of the Methodists with Whitfield and, and Wesley, when they came to decision-making, when they weren't sure what to do, they used to flip a coin. And they prayed before they flipped the coin. I've never done that, I don't think, but I might try it sometime. I mean, it seems like a pretty good thing to do. Harrison, what do you think? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if God is in sovereign control, and, and they gave that up, by the way, that practice that they used in the early days, they gave it up because it's a little gimmicky and it's a, maybe a little Old Testament-ish that shouldn't be transferred to the New Testament. But sometimes we feel like that, like, Lord, I don't know what to do. When the, when the blasphemer was taken, Moses had to say, Lord, what should we do with him? Put him in ward, and then he waited on God, and God revealed to them what they ought to do. It says about the men of Issachar that they understood the times and what Israel ought to do. So there is discernment, but let's not be overconfident about our discernment. We have to wait on the Lord. We don't have a ceremony that we can go through necessarily to be able to come to a conclusion like this man did about his wife. And what a, what a day of rejoicing that would be if he discovered that she indeed was innocent. And he must have felt like two cents, like, I'm sorry that I ever thought this way or accused you that way. But it was a real feeling. And I find it amazing that God would respect our feelings. He respected that man's feelings. And if, he, if that feeling came upon him, this is what you're supposed to do. Anyway, my little lesson this morning, and it was kind of a this morning switchover because who know, wasn't sure if we're going to have this service at all. And then I thought, well, you know, I want to do a little mini-series on the Holy Spirit, and I don't want so many people to miss it. So anyway, I subbed it in. So forgive me if you got nothing out of this message, but it was something that I hope was a little profitable and that at least you would learn from 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture, all the Old Testament, if I can be specific, is given by inspiration of God so that we should never play down the value of the Old Testament. And then when we interpret it, if we can have and find a true one-to-one -one correspondence, you can put an amen on that. And especially if you find the New Testament giving you inspired instructions that this is how, like for instance, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. 
we see that that Passover symbolized the Lord Jesus offering himself as the final sacrifice and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, let's close in prayer and then we'll have our last song. Father, thank you for your written word. Thank you that all scripture is truly given by inspiration, Lord. We pray that, Lord, you would make us diligent readers of the word, not merely to grow in knowledge, but, Lord, to grow in grace of our Lord Jesus, to learn of you. We know, Lord, that you teach us by your spirit inwardly, but yet, Lord, you use the word of God to instruct us. So help us, Lord, to have that same exhortation to study to show ourselves approved unto you, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as Timothy needed truly to rightly divide the old from the new and to divide portions of scriptures in ways that would be accurately uh, uh, employed in the New Testament, may we, Lord, to become more skilled in our use of the word of God every day of our lives, Lord. We know that this is how we are to live, not by bread alone, but by every word. And so, Lord, give us help, we pray thee, Guide us and direct us as a church body. Show us, Lord, what your will is. Are we to move to Gulf Street? Are we not, Lord? Are we to stay here longer? Lord, whatever your will is, we pray, Father, as we have no answers, but we put everything in your hands, Lord. Guide us and direct us as a church. Give us love for one another, Lord, and give us a hunger and appetite for the scriptures that we might be able to build each other up on our most holy faith. We ask it all in Jesus' precious and worthy name.